In this special advisory board edition of AML Conversations, AML Right Source Vice Chairman John Byrne interviews Mary Lou Jimenez, who recently joined the AML Right Source Advisory Board in early April. Mary Lou has extensive legal and compliance experience in both the United States and internationally. She runs her own advisory practice and shares her views on the regulatory environment in Latin America, as well as her dedication to training and other interesting aspects of the AML challenges we all face. Now, sit back and enjoy AML Conversations. Mary Lou, a couple things I wanted to ask you. One is, um, you've recently joined uh, the board of AML Right Source, and one of the reasons, besides your normal expertise in AML in your career, that um, we wanted you on the board is your involvement not only in the continental U.S., but obviously in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. So I'm curious, um, what's, if anything, what's the major difference? I know the different laws and jurisdictions. What's the difference in AML response in financial institutions in Latin, Latin American or Caribbean countries versus the U.S.? Or it's just a sense, is it just scope? The scope's different because like anything else, jurisdictions are different. So I don't mean the laws and the regulators so much as that maybe the skill sets of the people that do AML, is it considered a priority? So I know there's a lot to unpack there, but just from all the work you've done, what's, mm -hmm. what's the biggest difference or set of differences? Well, I mean, I think there's um, actually a perception issue. Um, I mean, you, you have jurisdictions like Mexico, which you might consider there's a lot of corruption, but at the same time, they have a very mature AML regime. And, and in some instances, it's, it's even more strict than, than in the U.S., but I'm sure many people don't know that. Um, the Caribbean, I think, has a lot of work to do still. Um, some of the mutual evaluations have not come out that well. So, um, and I think they take it seriously, um, but many times the talent might not be there. I mean, it's, it's hard to find um, um, the, the right people to, to work in, in the Caribbean, and I had that experience uh, in my prior job. Latin America in general, I, I mean, I think um, we're seeing an uptick of, um, of new regulation and, um, and regulators that are, are, are um, what would be the word, um, regulators that really t know what they're doing. They do know what they're yeah. doing. Yeah, okay. they know what they're doing. Right. You can see that. And that wasn't the case before. That's yeah, okay. well, in some countries, maybe not, but right. um, you see um, Argentina, um, Mexico, Panama. I mean, Panama, after the Panama Papers, uh, have, has been extremely active in trying to clean their their the perception in the world of what they're doing. So their uh, banking associations are extremely active in seeing what they have to do to change that, that perception, which takes time. I mean, the whole thing of the Panama Papers affected them a lot. Um, but uh, I mean, they understand either they get it right or, or they get it right. Um, you have, for example, right after the Panama Papers, I was, I was speaking to someone, a compliance officer from Panama, they lost more than 30 correspondent banking relations. Wow. 
Uh, so, I, I mean, I think um, those regimes know that it's survival, um, and, and they're getting their act together. You know, um, we have a board member on the ACAMS board that's from Colombia, and similarly, I remember not that long ago where Colombia was seen, you know, based on movies and some real life um, as havens for drug cartels and, mm -hmm. and that the laws and regulations were ineffective. I've heard more than recently, but for a number of years, that that's no longer true, that it actually is a pretty solid and strong regime. Is that, in fact, your experience? Yeah, that, that in fact, is, is true. I didn't mention uh, Colombia, but again, they, have, they, they know that they have to up their uh, systems, and they have, and, um, and they do have uh, strong regulatory bodies. I mean, as, as in the States, and as in the United States, there are uh, recommendations, FATF recommendations, that they have to work on, uh, but they, they are taking this very seriously. You um, obviously live and have worked in uh, Puerto Rico for a number of years, and you just left your institution, and now you're consulting. Puerto Rico was uh, devastated by the hurricane a, a bit ago, and obviously the infrastructure t took a very serious hit. How did that impact the financial sector uh, beyond the, the you know electrical and, and other issues? Was was there an impact on? Compliance, I don't mean that people no longer do compliance, but when something like that happens, what's the response of both the institutions and the regulators? Because obviously your priority is to, is to live and exist and everything else, but Puerto Rico was so devastated. What happened in the AML community, the compliance community in general, I guess, throughout the period of time as, as you, you have uh, rebuilt and obviously okay. still need to rebuild? It was very interesting because I, I in the first few days after the storm, uh, we were in constant communication with the Federal Reserve, FDIC, mm -hmm. FinCEN. Um, I mean, we would get into calls because there, there were things that the island not, not only didn't have electricity, communication was shot. Sure. So uh, even to get money um, to the island, uh, the Federal Reserve had to, to fly uh, a plane to Puerto Rico with cash mm -hmm. uh, because all of, all of a sudden, cash was king. I mean, if you can't, uh, if you don't have any systems, uh, either you have money to buy things or you can't uh, do anything. So, I mean, I think um, from the AML community, uh, everyone responded. Uh, Puerto Ricans are very resilient. So after maybe a few days, a lot of people were back in the office, even if there was no electricity. and. I, the biggest problem was that there was no gas either. So, uh, I mean, lines were huge. You you could be in a line eight eight hours to to get twenty dollars of of gas. So, I mean, we had to devise things to make sure that the employees were were taken care of. Like, well, a particular place where you could get uh, gas um, by water, so to give water to the employees. Sure. Um, but everyone responded very well, and um, the U.S. government uh, helped a lot to, to be able to, to continue operations in the banking sector. Let's go back in terms of your um, career. 
if you can recall when you first got involved in, in AML, probably I'm imagining it wasn't even called AML then, but when the Bank Secrecy Act became part of your obligations, uh, what, what were the, the key laws and regs that you dealt with then? What was it, what was it like? So you were a lawyer, obviously, so you yeah. come in and take, take a role. Was it something that, that added to your current responsibilities? I mean, I know you ended up being the chief compliance officer, but when you started doing bank secrecy, was it, this is now your responsibility, and then you hired people to do that, and you oversaw that, or I think you probably were, I know you, you were pretty well engaged in the topic, but when you first got involved, what was that like? Well, um, I mean, I got somewhat engaged when I, I was working at Citibank um, in, branch in Puerto Rico. Um, I knew about it, but it was not part of my responsibilities. I was legal counsel at the time, and um, but Citibank had had a money laundering issue, so uh, as a lawyer, I had to get uh, somewhat involved. But in Santander, um, uh, I headed the corporate compliance function and organized the whole the whole function. So um, Santander at the time had and still has has a branch in in New York, and obviously, well, the Federal Reserve was watching very carefully what was being done there. And then um, Casablanca came, the Casablanca case, which sure. I think was 1997. Mm -hmm. um, and that changed the dynamics completely. I mean, the bank was looking to, that they could be accused of money laundering and, um, and fined. So um, as Every time that you have um, a potential enforcement action, you put a lot of money into it. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that in Santander, we built um, a very robust program before 9-11 um, and FFIC. Mm -hmm. um, so that was pretty much a lot of uh, the work I was doing. Um, it was. Um, setting up policies, procedures, uh, seeing what was going to be monitored um, without guidance. Uh, and uh, I remember, I mean, know your customer. Right. Know your customer at the time, even though uh, no one, I mean, besides uh, Rick Small was talking about uh, know your customer, uh, we were building that uh, platform in, in Santander at the time. Interesting. And so um, one of the things that I know you were instrumental in, and you still are, is the training of your peers and colleagues in Puerto Rico through the Puerto Rican Bankers Association. Um, you helped create and develop the very first money laundering prevention conference, which still goes on today. What was that like in the, so the early days of putting that together? And how are you doing? I know I, I was fortunate to be part of your program earlier this year, so it's still vibrant and, mm -hmm. and probably getting more people each year, which is great. What was it like to create it in the early days? Resistance? Obviously, the association agreed with doing it, and then take us from there to, to, to today. There was no resistance. Um, it, was, it was at a, a time that um, the principal bank in Puerto Rico had problems with um, they had a, a money laundering case, so uh, and and I mean I, it was obvious that the community had to be educated. So um, I 
I got a lot of help from the um, Puerto Rico Bankers Association to to set that up. Uh, but I mean, it's not something that I had done in the past. Sure. So it was like trial. I mean, invite someone. Uh, actually, one of the first uh, speakers I had in Puerto Rico was Rick Small. Mm -hmm. And first time, maybe one or two speakers, and second time, well, a few panels. And uh, after a while, you, you, you know how to do these things. Mm -hmm. uh, you learn. So uh, I think first, maybe we had 100 people, 200 people, to 500 people mm -hmm. uh, that come to the conference. Um, what I have tried to do through the years is bring the same experts that that you can see in in the um, most important conferences here in the states, in ABA, ACAMS, to Puerto Rico, and 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 bring the same guidance. Um, and and it, I, I think it's it's very well received by regulators locally and regulators in the states that understand that what we're doing in Puerto Rico is worth. Uh, it's a worthwhile effort to educate the community. Yeah, I think there's no question that um, uh, people look at it that are here or in Puerto Rico as an event they got to be at. Mm -hmm. But then the folks that you invite, it's always something that's important to them to participate because obviously you've had presenters from, from New York, from Washington, D.C., from all around the states, and, and with a combination of some local folks, the, the commissioner of banking yeah. and uh, local U.S. Uh, attorney general or um, district attorney's office, that, that sort of thing, which is really important. And and obviously it's it's bilingual, so you mm -hmm. have Spanish and English presenters. So I think it's a pretty unique conference. Obviously, we've both been yeah. to a bunch of conferences over the years, and I think yours has that particular flavor to it that people find extremely valuable because, like you say, it's local talent plus those outside the states that either have business in Puerto Rico or have um, supervisory uh, responsibilities in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the it, it's unique. I'm a practitioner. I know what's going on. I know what's uh, needed. I know the questions compliance officers have, uh, doubts, um, and the need of guidance. So, and I know enough people that I can reach out to whoever I think it's it's worthwhile, without thinking, well, um, it's this a vendor or, I mean, I just reach out to the best people that I can uh, to to do the conference. So that I think that makes it different. I mean, it's not a vendor oriented uh, conference. It's it's really an educational um, conference to make sure that we bring the best people to Puerto Rico. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the priorities today for AML professionals. We hope you're enjoying this edition of AML Conversations. This podcast and many other anti-money laundering and Bank Secrecy Act related posts, podcasts, and case studies can be found on our new website at amlrightsource.com. Our team of AML BSA professionals regularly produces informative content that we hope you find resourceful. Check the AML Right Source website or follow us on LinkedIn for updates. So now that you've uh, left your financial institution but are consulting and advising and providing uh, legal advice and compliance advice to, uh, to, to clients both here and abroad, 
How is that different? Now, you were a lawyer before, so uh, you, you had that experience before you went into an institution. But how is it different to, today? And I don't mean how is it different getting clients, but you know, when you were in the bank, you were the one on the line with the regulator, right, with the examiner. Now you're advising those same institutions mm -hmm. that have to do that. What, um, what's different other than the obvious, being somebody that provides advice and counsel? How is it different? It's different. Well, first, you don't have the same liability. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I'm a go-getter person, so it's hard for me uh, to just provide advice and not take control of, uh, of things. So that, that's a shift. Um, I'm seeing, I mean, many institutions have the same issues they've had for for a number of years uh, lack of good documentation uh, lack of good procedures uh, obviously there's areas that or gray areas that that you provide guidance on sure. um, that that many people may not have um, the experience uh, to 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 be able to know uh, the information um, but I would say um, I mean, we're listening a lot to AI, um, the whole thing of uh, machine learning. Right. Um, I think that has provided an expectation for ma for managements that okay, we're gonna cost cost control, which might be true. Sure. Might might not. Uh, but you still have the same pressures as um, ten years ago. On I mean, you have. And to produce ours and um, investigate suspicious activity. And um, there has been a shift in the, the compliance groups, data scientists, um, engineers that you wouldn't have seen maybe 10 years ago. Oh, of course, right. Which I think it's going to help, um, obviously, make better investigations. Um, um, through machine learning, we probably can see things that the normal I can't. Uh, so we, we'll probably get better investigations. If that's going to mean that institutions are going to have less co compliance cost, I think it's too soon to, to tell. Right, right. I think, I think that's right. And does that mean, from your perspective, because again, uh, as we mentioned, legal background, that you have to have um, a better understanding of big data and AI? Because obviously, you know, we've been in this space quite a long period of time. That's mm -hmm. not our background. Yeah. But you have to have some, uh, not deep understanding, but you have to, you know, so, sort of be in the mix. How, how do you stay on top of that? Um, I think you have to have a general knowledge, mm -hmm. um, and obviously, if you're supervising it, you have to have a little bit more of a general knowledge. But I mean, um, algorithms—it's uh, I, I probably will never understand. Sure, neither would I. <laughs> right. So um, I, I think you have to have smart people to to help you to guide you through those processes and explain them to you. Um, so that you understand the, the framework of on what you're working on. What, what are the biggest challenges to your current and prospective clients today that didn't exist five years ago? Besides what you just said, obviously, you know, we, we talked at this, con we're at the ACAMS conference in Hollywood as we sit down to talk about uh, your views on things. 
um, and technologies come up. We talked about innovation, yeah. and um, you know, uh, I think tomorrow is uh, sessions on reg tech and fintech, all that kind of stuff. But how how uh, how have things changed? Of you know, for for the industry, for the for the AML community in the past five ten years. Uh, expectations keep on increasing. Right. Um, I mean, it's not only the um, having the right set of skills, but that, well, a new guidance comes out. I mean, 10 years ago, human trafficking, no one was thinking right. about human trafficking. Now we're talking about the antiquities and art, um, art, art dealers. Yeah. Uh, so every year there's a shift on more. Um, tax evasion. Um, elder abuse. Elder abuse. Yeah. And um, I mean, many institutions have, it's the same people. Uh, that do everything. Right. So um, probably, I mean, it's it's the whole thing of um, being able to 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 grasp things fast. And okay, this new guidance came out. How are we gonna? Uh, materialize it. Sure, How are sure. we going to do it? Even if you don't have to quote implement it, you got to yeah. do something with the guidance. Yeah. Right? yeah. And and I think and, and it's a project that I'm working on in Puerto Rico right now um, to get uh, an ACAMS chapter uh, running um, because collaboration um, and communication. I think it's it's among um, the industry. I think it's it's clear critical. I mean I. I've seen some people that say, well, it's my shop. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell anyone else how to do their job. But many times you have questions on how, how to do things. So um, hopefully we'll, we'll have this running um, by the summer and, and start providing um, trainings and, and having the opportunity of, for compliance officers to talk of uh, yeah, how they're yeah, sure. doing things, right. networking. I was doing the session on enhanced due diligence um, before before we're, we were here, and there's still questions on, sure. so how, I mean, high-risk customers, should I uh, look at them every year, the enhanced due diligence, it should be every year. If it's low-risk customers, should I look at them at all? And Everyone has a different answer, but you want to be able to know, well, this bank is doing this, I am doing this, I'm, do I'm going to document what I'm doing and um, take uh, whatever is the best of, uh, of the whole uh, conversation. Sure. Communi like you said, communication, collaboration mm -hmm. is key, mm -hmm. and, and as you, you know, connect chapter people, Having the government and the private sector involved is, is obviously equally important for yeah. not just partnering, but understanding what each side does, all, exactly. the, all the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So I think that a chapter is a really good vehicle for that. Your conference tends to be a great vehicle mm -hmm. for that. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you some final quick questions. Um, given uh, the next generation of AML professionals that we all want to see, what advice would you have for them? And, and I'll, I'll prejudice your answer a little bit. Uh, we did something like we asked this similar question okay. yesterday on a previous uh, live podcast that, or uh, live podcast that we did at ACAMS with uh, Chuck Taylor, who, mm -hmm. like you, is now involved in the AML Right Source. And um, Chuck said something pretty interesting that I think we would, we would both agree with. He said, 
to, to younger folks, volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. Try to get involved, whether it's in a chapter, mm -hmm. whether it's writing articles, whether it's participating in task forces. So that's one way you yeah. can, we can advise the next generation is get engaged. What else would you say to them? Well, I mean, you know that I have always been extremely engaged. I, uh, and for, for uh, someone who lives in an island, Right. It's even more important <laughs> to to be able to to engage with uh, other jurisdictions, see what other people are doing, but also study. I mean, um, many times, I mean, you 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 see professionals that are so overworked right. that they come in, they do their thing, and they leave. But why are we doing this? And not only why are we doing this, but have you looked at the regulation? Have you looked at what it says, what, what the requirements are? Mm -hmm. Many people don't read. Um, so my, my advice would be um, make sure you, you, you're well prepared, uh, not only, I mean, to do the job, but study the, the whole thing. Study how this this uh, started, um, how it changed through time, what happened after 9-11, and uh, every instance where there has been a new regulation, why ha has that happened? And I think that gives you a, a very different perspective of why you're doing this, um, which ultimately is to catch the bad guys. <laughs> oh, that's a great point. Yeah, stay, stay engaged, stay curious, mm -hmm. and read, um, ask questions. I mean, yeah. I think that's it. Be, again, just just want to know why. If, if you're in this space just because it's a job, you're in the wrong job. You're right? in, a, in the wrong job. Yeah. Totally, totally. Thanks so much uh, for, for not just talking to us today, but also being part of uh, our advisory board at AML Right Source. Mm -hmm. We're real excited to to get moving and do some things. And of course, yeah. uh, look forward to hearing about the, the chapter and of course, next year's conference. Yeah. And having feminine representation in your board. <laughs> Absolutely, 100% agree. AML Rights Source is extremely honored to have Mary Lou Jimenez join our board. And in future podcasts, we will sit down with other members uh, of our advisory board and talk to them about similar challenges and issues that they've seen in their careers and also where they see the AML community going forward, both here in the United States and obviously internationally. One of the key things, as I hope we've mentioned and hopefully you got out of the interview with Mary Lou, is the importance of training and working with the AML community uh, to both understand what our challenges are and offer ideas and recommendations on best practices and um, the need for private-public partnership. That's obviously something that uh, she believes in. She's been an active member of the Treasury Department's public-private sector dialogues in the past. She's also received awards from ACAMS for her work in the Latin American community. So hope you enjoyed this edition of AML Conversations, and we will see you next time.